The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Okay, how's that? Oh, that's much better. Um, Today's reading from Scripture is going to be from Hebrews chapter 1. It's going to be page 580 in your blue Bibles. So if you have one of the blue Bibles from back there, page 580. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1 verses 4 through 14. And if we could please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. morning, everyone. Well, before we get into scripture this morning, why don't we spend a few minutes in prayer? Please pray with me. Father God, uh, we say with the psalmist, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. We thank you this morning, God, for that steadfast love that has tracked each one of us down, each one of us who are in Christ. You've given your steadfast love. And we love you because you first loved us. And we can never take credit for how you brought us to the foot of the cross where we behold with wonder the finished work of Christ on our behalf. So we pray that you'd keep us there. Keep us at the foot of the cross. Keep us humble and awestruck, drinking water from the well of mercy, never forgetting 
our great need, never forgetting your abundant provision. And Lord, as we think to the life of our church, we want to stop and pray for myself and Pastor Victor and Pastor Craig, for the pastors of the Source Church. We, we pray always, uh, but particularly this summer, as we think to the future, we pray that you'd give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to lead this congregation toward greater holiness and unity and freedom and faithfulness and joy. God, it's bewildering that you choose to work through just frail and fallible leaders like us, but we have confidence in your leadership, Lord. And so as we submit to you, we ask that your purposes for this flock would advance better than any of us could have engineered according to our own understanding. And we ask also that you'd go before us and that you would prepare hearts as we start conversations and hand out materials on Tuesday cruise nights. And we pray that those who have already received tracts and books and Bibles would be drawn to you through the truth of your word. We pray that many more would be open to our efforts in the weeks to come. Lord, give us joy in this great work. It's not easy work, especially in our culture. We've, we've been so trained that it's intrusive or embarrassing to be too forward about our faith or about the church. So give us courage and persistence knowing that you are the only hope for humanity. And as your word says, how will they believe if they've never heard? And your word says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. I pray, God, that you do that work in each one of us, that you would make us a church that's always looking upward to you and also looking outward to those who need you. We pray also this morning for Nancy Formasano as she continues to adjust to life at Sunny Hill Nursing Home. God, grant her quick progress in physical therapy. But even more than that, we ask that you would grant her joy and trust as she rests in your sovereign care. Give her great trust in the promises of your word. Help her to remind herself of those promises and to share them with nurses and visitors and fellow residents. And Lord, in light of just ongoing inflation in the economy and fears of possible recession, we just pray according to Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So Lord, keep us trusting in your provision, not in any system, not in ourselves. Make us a people who are content and a people whose dearest treasure is not in this world. We thank you for how as Jesus ascended in power and sat down on the throne of the universe, you did not leave us as orphans. You gave your spirit who is comforting us, correcting us, teaching us, and we trust that he's teaching us even this morning through your enduring words. So give us ears now to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we ended with the statement that Jesus sat down on the throne of the universe. And that displayed that he had become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus has a better name than angels. His reputation, his notoriety are greater. He deserves much more honor than an angel ever could. 
And this is the first of a number of comparisons that we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, showing us the supremacy of Jesus in all things. Now, why would we need to think about how Jesus is superior? I mean, isn't that a no-brainer for Christians? Of course we think Jesus is superior. Actually, no, it's, it's not a no-brainer, because every day we are tempted to chase anything that is comforting or fun or flashy and to, to give our worship to that instead. Much of the time, we're, we're actually worshiping ourselves. So we do need to meditate on the incomparable worth of Jesus. Because if we lose sight of him, there's quite simply nothing and no one to save us and to satisfy our souls. And that's why the title of our sermon series through Hebrews is, Jesus is Better. We're going to see how Jesus is better than anything we could use to replace him. And this is our first stop, that Jesus is better than angels. But why angels? I mean, maybe that struck you as a little odd last week when we were, we were talking about Jesus as prophet and priest and king, and then all of a sudden he's superior to angels. Um, bam. Why, why start with angels? Well, angels appear throughout the Bible, and they are spirit beings who are servants of God. But there's nothing to suggest that they themselves should be honored or revered. So then why would we need to remember that Jesus is better than them? If we look back to the original recipients of the book of Hebrews, um, there's evidence that in their culture at large, in those few centuries around the, the, the coming of Christ, angels were definitely elevated in the minds of Jewish people. There was a popular fascination with angels, and, and they would appear with great detail in all sorts of legends and fictional tales that, that were passing around. And common people would often let their imaginations latch on to angels in their hopes for deliverance from the Roman oppression or for personal safety or for prosperity. And to be honest, I'm not sure that that phenomenon is much different in our culture. I mean, in the last 200 years, angels have definitely been a topic of fascination in our civilization as well. I think it started, um, I mean, it's probably always been around to some degree, but the European Romantic era made wildly popular drawings and statues of angels, particularly connected to sentimental situations like um, childhood or love or death. And these angels appeared mostly as, like, really dramatic-looking people with golden hair and feathery wings. I think Hallmark kind of kept that trend alive throughout the 20th century. And um, in 1998, Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan starred in this blockbuster film, City of Angels, which contains all sorts of spurious notions about angels and what they do. Um, from 1994 to 2003, there was a popular TV series called Touched by an Angel, which at its peak had almost 22 million viewers eager to watch these well-meaning angels who often seemed kind of like therapists who just occasionally would give a little supernatural nudge to try to try their best to help humanity. But honestly, they, they looked fairly limited in their ability to do much. Um, but even today, just, just in casual conversations in, in pop culture, it's, it's not uncommon to hear jokes or stories that involve angels or to see house decorations or jewelry that celebrates angels in some way. So in light of all that cultural teaching that we've been exposed to outside of the Bible, um, we need to return to what the Bible says about angels and make sure we understand it. So I want to clear up a few common questions. 
First, do people become angels when they die? No. We can say with certainty from Scripture that this is false, even though it's a storyline often used in Christmas movies or, or when loved ones tragically die. But in the Bible, we're told that the dead don't return to earth. They, they go either to God's presence or to judgment, but not into employment as angels. Second question, are some angels evil? Yes, the Bible explains that sometime long ago there was a rebellion in heaven initiated by Satan or Lucifer, who is himself an angel. And one-third of the angels were expelled along with him. But rest assured, this is not a live war, as if Satan could still in any way win. Jesus, through his victory on the cross and in the resurrection, has decisively triumphed over evil spirits. And in the end, these forces are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. For now, they are allowed to rage for a little while longer, and so they aim to deceive and destroy humanity while they can, not just through physical death, but also by making sure that people are eternally separated from God. And they'll even cause people to thrive in this world if it'll serve that ultimate goal. But our all-powerful God is more than able to protect those who are his. Which leads us to our third question. Are there guardian angels? Maybe. We're less certain on this one. Matthew 18.10 is an interesting comment by Jesus, uh, which says, speaking of children, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels always see the face of of my Father who is in heaven. So in other words, we're not to treat children poorly because angels who represent them always have God's attention. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's one angel to one person or uh, we don't have any clue as to how exactly they operate. And this is the only passage in Scripture that suggests something like this. So my takeaway is we're simply not to focus inordinately on guardian angels or really on any angel. Now maybe you grew up in a Muslim tradition that verbally honors angels before prayer. Or maybe you grew up in a Catholic tradition where sometimes angels are even prayed to. But the Bible doesn't model such a focus. And perhaps, you know, I think perhaps we're tempted to focus on angels because in our imaginations they seem maybe a little safer to approach or somehow more accessible to us than God himself. But neither is true. Jesus himself is the better advocate. And we'll see in this text that Jesus is better than angels. So in this passage, we, we have seven quotations. You probably saw that as we were reading it. There's all these um, indentations in the text because these are quotes, quotes from the Old Testament. And there's seven of them um, sort of as um, the author's evidence of what he's saying, that Jesus is better than angels. Um, they're laid out to show us Jesus' superiority, and the main reasoning is that a son is better than a servant. So if you're the son and the heir of a great house, then you can accomplish more than a servant ever could, and you have far greater honor. So I want you to see that Jesus is better than angels because he has the position, the nature, and the authority of the son. So here's a slide showing where we're going. Three quotes about the son emphasizing his position, his nature, his authority. Then in the middle, one quote about angels. 
And then three more quotes about the son to emphasize his authority, his nature, and his position. So it's going to be a little bit of work uh, to get our minds around these seven quotations, but we need to grow in our ability to track with arguments like this. So buckle up. Here we go. Uh, We'll start with verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This quote is from Psalm 2, which describes how God made David and his heirs to be kings in his name. And this psalm was probably sung at coronation ceremonies, where the new king was envisioned as God's son. But the scope of the psalm is breathtaking, and you quickly see that this is about more than just the ancient kingdom of Israel. So let me read some for us, starting in uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And then God says to the king, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And then the psalm ends with this word to everyone. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the author of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus fulfills these words to an ultimate degree in a way that no Davidic king of ancient Israel ever could because he stands in the position of messianic son. And so in in him, in Jesus, the nations are truly inherited, the wicked are truly called to account, and the humble and needy ones can find refuge in him. What then do we make of these words about today I have begotten you? What does begotten mean anyway? And don't we believe that Jesus was always God the Son from eternity past? Yes, we do. So the function of the word begotten here is is something like, today I've celebrated your sonship. Today I've made your sonship official. I formally validated and installed you in this role. So remember that this was originally celebrating the coronation of a king, and that's exactly how you should think about it in regard to Jesus. In fact, when Psalm 2-7 is quoted in, um, in Acts 13, it's, it's being used in reference to the resurrection. The resurrection is viewed as Jesus' coronation day. So this verse, Psalm 2-7, when we think about Jesus' coronation day on the time of his resurrection and, and God saying, you are my son, um, It has less to do with Jesus being God the Son from eternity past, which is also true, but it has more to do with the fact that he took up the office of royal son that was always his for the taking as king overall. And you see the same sort of language in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. It says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So you see that same connection that at the resurrection, something happens that validates Jesus forever as this messianic king who bears the office of son. So the point of this first quote is, God never said to an angel, you are rightfully enthroned as king of the universe. No, no angel even comes close to having the position of royal son. Well, next, the second verse, the second quote in verse 5 says, Or again, I will be to him a father, 
and he shall be to me a son. This is a, qu a quote from 1 Chronicles 17, 13, when God is promising to David that his line will be unending. And it's a passage that promises a unique relationship between God and this son. And the focus isn't really so much on the kingly role of the son, but more on the relationship, the closeness between God as father and this son as his dear one. And this son is going to enjoy f the favor of God simply because God will have the nature of a father toward him, and he will have the nature of a son toward a beloved father. And no mere angel could ever have this sort of bond with God the Father. It's just not in their nature. For quote number three, we'll look at verse six. It says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, but... First, let's talk about how it might weird you out a bit that uh, Jesus here is called the firstborn. Is this just saying that Jesus is like a normal person who's, who's born into the world, a created being? No, no, that'd be a bit like saying, like, if, if I call someone who is sly a fox, then I'm saying that they have a bushy tail. No, it's, it's, it doesn't follow. All imagery has its specific purpose, right? You can't stretch it too far or else it, it loses all meaning. And in the same way, um, this text is saying, in calling Jesus firstborn, it's saying that he predates all of creation. And as was the ancient custom for the firstborn, he gets the inheritance. He is heir of everything. So this text says that as Christ is put forward to fulfill God's purposes in the world, all God's angels worship him. And we certainly see that at the time of his birth, right, in the, in the Luke narrative, when the shepherds witnessed the multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Because Jesus has the authority as son, and he is to be honored, he's to be celebrated, he is to be worshipped by angels. But not the other way around. Angels are not to be worshipped. In Revelation 19, the apostle John falls down before an angel, and the angel reacts really strongly. He's like, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So those are our first three quotes about the Son. And then now, in the center of uh, the center quote of the seven, we shift focus to say something about angels. Of the angels, he says, he... He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And this is from Psalm 104. It basically portrays that angels execute God's commands with all the speed of wind and all the strength of fire. And here I want to stop and just make sure that we realize how powerful angels really are. Um, most people in our society probably aren't like the original audience of Hebrews, those who are, who are unduly fascinated with angels. Probably in our society there's a good number of, who uh, are very anti-supernatural, um, and uh, they may balk it at there being any supernatural realm at all. So if you've come to faith out of that sort of a, a secular background, maybe you're tempted to say, well, yeah, of, of course Jesus is superior to angels. I mean, angels are kind of wispy and whimsical, aren't they? Um, so if that's you, and you struggle to, to even take angels seriously, I, I just want to give you a wake-up call that you need to grasp the reality of the spiritual realm all around us. Because if we could even see what was happening in, in these unseen realms, we would, we would be amazed. We would also be terrified. 
Do you realize the things that angels do in the Bible? We, we see angels have power to block paths of travel. They um, blind people. They kill people. They save people from certain death. They give provision. They deliver history-changing announcements. They pour out judgments. They fight battles in unseen realms. So you do not want to mess with an angel. One children's Bible I know doesn't even use the word angel because in our minds it's, you know, it's pretty easy to perceive something like pretty and floaty. And so instead, this children's Bible calls them warriors of light. And I really like that. Um, because whenever an angel appears in Scripture, what's the first thing they say? Fear not. They, they have to say that because you would be afraid. You would be terrified. If an angel were revealed right in front of you, maybe there is an angel right in front of you. We have no idea. If you could see something like that, you would fall down in terror. I guarantee it. So only after we perceive the power and the intelligence and the very drastically supernatural nature of angels can we then step back and rightly see the supremacy of Jesus even over them. Though they are glorious and terrifying beings, they're at Jesus' disposal. He can dispatch them however he pleases. So, now we go back to contrasting the, the servants, the angels, with the Son in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is from Psalm 45, and it's a very interesting declaration. It's speaking to a ruler who is called God, and then it, it speaks of what God, your God, has done for that first figure. So what's going on here? There's simply no good way to explain it apart from it speaking ahead of time of the divine Messiah. Jesus is God. And really, Hebrews 1 is the chapter of the Bible that most fully celebrates and unpacks that deity of Christ. It does it in a magnificent way. So we see this portrait of God the Son. He's ruling here with authority. And that authority bears all the character of God. The Son is a just king. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. And so he's been rewarded in a way that brings great gladness beyond any others. So we see here that the Son, the way he exercises his authority, perfectly pleases the Father. And it's just who Jesus is according to his own desires. But not necessarily so the angels. They do what they're told because they are obedient servants. But in Scripture, we never hear language about angels loving something or angels hating something. They're merely an extension of their master's desires. And then the emphasis on Jesus' divinity continues in verse 9. And it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. If we were to look at Psalm 102 from, from where this quote was taken, you'd see that the first half of the psalm is kind of a lament. It's um, someone who's afflicted in a world full of decay and brokenness. That's the first half of the psalm. And then the, the second half of the psalm is focused on God as the permanent one 
who can bring salvation into that situation. Um, that's the psalm on its face. But here the author of Hebrews is showing this psalm maybe as Jesus would have experienced it. Jesus being able to interpret it with himself as the man of sorrows, identifying with all the anguish of humanity in that first part of the psalm, uh, perhaps in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was preparing for suffering on the cross. And then the second half of the psalm is celebrating what Christ is accomplishing even in the midst of that sorrow and the fact that he is permanent. His throne is indestructible. And no matter what happens in that day to come, he will rise again to finish the story of this heavens and earth that were initiated through him in the beginning. So in regard to angels, this quote again simply stuns us with how Christ is the very essence of God because he is God. The inherent nature of the Son makes Jesus better than any servant, including angels. And isn't that image striking? Um, I, I just love this quote because it talks about how his years will have no end and he will one day just roll up the sky like a piece of fabric. Isn't that cool to think about? This is your king. This is the one to whom you can look to for deliverance. And then verse 13 gives us a seventh and a final argument from the Old Testament. It says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God the Father promises this total degree of victory to the messianic king who we know is Jesus, God the Son. And that's from Psalm 110, which... Um, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. And it's also the most quoted passage here in the book of Hebrews. And I think that's because it uniquely speaks to where Christ went and what he's doing now. He is on the throne of the universe as our priestly king. And we saw that in verse 3 last week when it said, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus' position right now as the enthroned son makes him superior to angels in power, in glory, in, in worthiness. He deserves our worship like none other. As for angels, well, we, we can conclude the way verse 14 does. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels are the greatest of all servants. They bring messages, provision, protection. They're instruments of God's justice. One day, an army of angels will show up when Christ returns. But for now, though we know that they're active, we, we don't know exactly all the ways that angels fight for God's people. And that's because they're not meant to be our focus. Their captain is. He is our focus. Now, I don't in any way want to suggest, well, we can just forget angels. You know, they're not important. Now, in the last chapter of Hebrews, we're actually exhorted to show hospitality to strangers because by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So they are active. They are among us. You know, Sarah and I both have stories from before we met of um, times when we were rescued in quite mysterious ways. Uh, maybe you also have stories of, of just interactions in your life that you, you can't explain. Could it have been an angel? 
quite possibly. But don't return thanks or pay homage to the servant. Instead, praise the one who loves you and who commanded this service for your good. So, as we wrap up, let's talk about angels. What, what is your struggle? Where do you need help? Do you need pardon for your sins? Do you need reconciliation to God? Do you need power to change the way you're living, the way you're going about things? Do you need help in a time of trouble or wisdom for difficult decisions? Do you need freedom from anxiety and depression? Do you need freedom from the fear of death? Whatever that need is that, that is just gnawing, that scares you, know that Jesus himself made cleansing for sin. Jesus himself has the power and the position to help you in a way that no other spiritual being can. So don't foster a superstitious hope that, well, an angel somewhere is looking out for me. No, go instead to the one who commands angels. His throne is a throne of mercy. And if you trust in Jesus, his rule is your victory. His resurrection, his glory, his inheritance are yours too. Jesus isn't distant. He's not unaware of the needs, either the global needs or your personal needs. He knows them. And the servants of his kingdom, the angels, are at work for the benefit of all of those who will inherit salvation. So trust him. Look directly to Jesus because he is far superior to angels. Lord, we ask that that superiority, that excellence of your name would be ingrained in our hearts and our minds more and more. Lord, we all have situations in our life that are frightening. We all have areas where we need help. And we could be tempted to just retreat into a sort of a, a colloquial um, folk spirituality that focuses on lesser things and, and wrong things and inferior means of help. We pray that you would direct us straight to you, Jesus. That we would know that you are for us. That you are able to rescue that you care, and that you are the commander of any spiritual beings who could come to our aid. We love you, Lord. Amen. Now I'll invite Pastor Craig to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper.